Hey, everybody, this is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Steven Spielberg hardly needs an introduction. He's the highest grossing director of all time, with over 50 influential titles under his belt, 11 of which were nominated for Oscars and three of which won. He's behind everything from Jaws, the world's first blockbuster, to the iconic Indiana Jones movies, to serious fare like Amistad and Saving Private Ryan. And he's a humanitarian to boot. Founded after his work on the Holocaust film Schindler's List, his Shoah Foundation has collected more than 55,000 video eyewitness testimonies of global genocide to try to educate and inspire action against intolerance. And yet, do we really know Spielberg? After all, he rarely does public appearances or gives in-depth interviews. Perhaps the director was just waiting for the right moment to tell his life story and the right person to tell it to. Well, fortunately for us, that time has come, and that person is my guest on today's show, Susan Lacey. As creator and former executive producer of the PBS series American Masters, she produced no less than 250 films exploring the lives of America's most influential cultural icons. For Spielberg, she turned her hand to directing. Lacey interviewed Spielberg for over 30 hours collectively, skillfully pulling out threads from his own life to weave together the film's thesis. Though he's not known as a personal filmmaker, there's a part of Spielberg in every film he makes. Lacey's documentary, also titled Spielberg, which recently premiered on HBO, is like the ultimate behind-the-scenes video, weaving together never-before-seen personal footage from Spielberg of early days hanging out with Coppola and Lucas, his early amateur films, archival and new interviews, and of course, clips from among his own considerable film canon, to create something that's not just a retrospective of work, but a portrait of the man behind it. One thing that struck me in watching it is the director's humility. Early in the film, he talks about how nervous he still gets before every scene, adding, quote, when that verges on panic, I come up with some really great ideas. And Dustin Hoffman describes him by saying, Steven is like a guy who works for Steven Spielberg. For this episode, I spoke with Susan Lacey and the film's editor, Deborah Peretz, before its premiere. And I think you'll really enjoy hearing about how they managed all of that archival and interview material and what they learned from Spielberg and his movies in making this one. I'll start just by asking you to introduce yourselves. Well, I'm Susan Lacey, and I'm the producer and the director on this film. I have two other producers, uh, Jessica Levin and Emma Pildes, and we uh, make, we are the core people and the only people, except for Rapeshi Shaw, in Pentimento Productions, which is uh, the company I formed when I left uh, Channel 13. I'm Deborah Peretz, and I'm a freelance film editor, and I've been worked with Susan um, probably for about 25 years. Uh, we've done, I think Spielberg is maybe the eighth film we've done together. So it's a long relationship. We're hand in glove. <laughs> it's so nice to have you both here together. We don't always get that luxury. So um, now, Susan, your producing career is just, you know, it's legend. Um, why did you decide that this was one you had to direct? This is, he's, uh, Stephen is somebody, I only direct films about people that I have a real um, compatibility with. And there's, you know, I, I really admire their work. I know that there are a lot of filmmakers who are looking to, you know, to do the other side of things. I, I only, I want to uh, make films about people whose work 
I feel has really had an impact on our culture. That's what American Masters, which is a series I created in 1986 and ran for over 30 years, is about. So Stephen was somebody who'd always been on my list of somebody that I wanted to make a film about. And he was elusive. You know, the most famous filmmaker in the world is not necessarily ready to have another filmmaker make a film about him. Uh, but I did an interview with him. Uh, well, we had interviewed him on a couple of occasions for films I did not direct. Uh, we did one on Robert Kappa, uh, whose photographs very much influenced the opening of Save It Private Ryan. I mean, he copied them almost. Uh, and uh, Norman Rockwell, because he's a huge Norman Rockwell collector, which did not make it into the film and probably will not surprise anybody that he's got one of the largest collections of Norman Rockwell in the world. Uh, but I interviewed him personally for a film I directed on uh, David Geffen. And we had a really good time. He enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And he remembered it. He always said it was one of his favorite interviews. And I would hear this from people. And so I started talking to him about doing a film just about the time that I was considering leaving uh, and going to HBO. Uh, so the timing was sort of perfect. Uh, I wanted to make a film about him because I have always felt that his work as a director, as like a serious artistic director, has been undervalued. Uh, that he is thought of as a, as obviously a very popular and commercial uh, and successful filmmaker, and a clearly a great filmmaker, but I don't think he's thought of in the same way that, say, Martin Scorsese is, as as a personal filmmaker, somebody who is bringing his his uh, heart and soul to these films um, in the same way. Or maybe as like an artist. Yeah, well, as an artist, exactly. <clears throat> and I think even he knows that it was a journey for him to achieve that. But it was more than that. It's, 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 he's always had mastery of filmmaking. Uh, it, it's really more that I felt that people think of him as a really successful, commercial, popular filmmaker, and they, they don't realize how personal actually his films are. And that's the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell it through the films and, uh, and find those threads and do it in a non-didactic kind of way, uh, and, which was a challenge, by the way. I mean, Deborah and I had a real challenge in how do you make a film about someone with a huge body of work, and by the way, decided to focus only on his directing career, but a huge body of work, a really su unbelievably successful body of work, some less successful than others, that, and, and also that to, both, to tell both the, the, to pay real attention to the craft, because he is a master craftsman, because that would have been very disappointing, I think, to real cinephiles to not have that. I had 30 hours with him to not go into that in this film, but for it not to turn into a film school class, uh, and weave that together with a personal narrative. Uh, and to not do film by film by film by film, you know, to find those thematic threads and uh, to make that work <laughs> in addition to the fact that, in, in addition to the 30 hours with Stephen, had 87 other interviews, so we were kind of overwhelmed with material. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad that Deborah's here today, because a film like this is, I mean, every film is reliant on editing, but I can only imagine what you all had to go through. So we'll get into some of that. Amazing. But just for continuing on this background thread, now we, we know why you were so drawn to directing this story. But why do you think Stephen, other than that initial interview, why do you think he trusted you and Deborah and your team to tell his story? Well, he didn't know anybody else on the team, so he was trusting me. But 
he said it. We had the premiere in L.A. a couple nights ago, and we had to do the red carpet. Have you ever walked a red carpet? I didn't even know what walking the red carpet meant. Uh, but it's 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 not just walking down the red carpet. It is having a hundred photo- photographers taking your picture, everybody screaming and yelling to look this direction, that direction, and then as you walk down it, <clears throat> you give interviews to the people holding a microphone, and uh, sometimes they're filming them, sometimes it's just audio. I did it twice, once by myself, and then once with Stephen. <clears throat> so what Stephen said to everyone, because I I wouldn't be putting words in his mouth unless I'd heard him say this, is that he, that from the moment that we met when I did that interview with him, he had said to himself, if I ever do this, I want to do it with Susan. Because he felt, uh, I don't know, what's the words he used? He felt uh, a lot of intelligence, insight, uh, compassion, uh, and he felt very, very comfortable talking to me. And he also had seen your work. Oh, yeah, and he'd seen others of, of my work. In addition to the Geffen film, he'd seen my Leonard Bernstein film, and which Deborah and I also did together. But, I, I mean, I, I couldn't get a better quote than that. I mean, I think it's going to be in the New York Times. He said, I wouldn't have done this with anyone else. What a great compliment. Yeah. That's actually in the New York Times piece. Both of you would have gotten to know Stephen in a certain way through doing this project. Susan directly, Deborah by spending hours with this <laughs> material. And I'm curious, what did you learn about him, not as a craftsman, but as a person that surprised you? Well, I had done a tremendous amount of preparation, which is another thing that Stephen talked about, that, you know, we did so many interviews because I knew his work so well. Uh, and the questions were deep, you know, and, and, uh, and probing. But <clears throat> so I knew a lot going in. But what I didn't know and, and, and to hear firsthand how, um, how articulate he is in talking about the process of filmmaking. Because I've made films about a lot of artists, and they're not always that articulate about their own process. I learned that he's incredibly intentional. There are very few things that are, that are and yet he's very open to the kind of magic and mystery of filmmaking or something happens and he wasn't expecting it. I mean, Jaws is a really good example, but uh, of how to go with something new, as prepared and intentional as he is. He's able, to, he's able to turn on a dime if the filmmaking calls for it. And he talks about that so well. There's just nothing that, that he doesn't understand. And he could actually do almost any job on, the, on a filmmaking crew. I mean, maybe not production design, but uh, he knows the camera as well as any cinematographer, and they will tell you that. And when he is uh, directing and he is directing the camera, he knows exactly how that film is going to be edited as he's shooting it, which is a talent that is uh, so rare and and so admired by <laughs> even major directors who don't know how to do that. It's It's like kind of peeling the egg, you know, have you ever done a Russian egg? What you do with wax? Where you, um, you have to be able to envision the design, where all you're doing is putting on wax and color, and it, then you melt it all off, and what emerges is this amazing design. He's able to do that in his head while he's making film, and I think that, that was one of the things that really amazed me, is how, just how um, 
what a great craftsman he is and how he understands the process of filmmaking really, really well. Also, he's, he's uh, I think, quite self-reflective, though I don't think he's ever put that out there before. He chose to put this out for this film. And he's genuinely a really, really nice guy. What about you? Yeah, Deborah, did you, you know, in, in sort of witnessing all of this material secondhand, was there anything, you know, that, that surprised you that you thought, I expected him to be one way and he was another? Or I didn't really have expectations about what he would be like, um, but I didn't really know anything about him except having seen his films and certainly appreciated the immense, you know, talent and craft that he put into them. Um, Susan's approach to this film and her questions, she was really kind of probing themes in his films. And a lot of that came from his personal story and his, his life. And I was surprised going back and watching the films to see, oh, yeah, this, you know, he does this in Close Encounters, and then he revisits it in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you know, things about the uh, absent father or uh, families being torn apart and coming back together again. And these were, I never really connected the dots until revisiting it in this context. Yeah, that was um, <clears throat> a theme that I was astounded at how consistent it was in his films. I mean, just, it's, you can find it in almost every film. There is a part of Stephen in every film that he makes, and that is what we were going for in this, in this film. And to do that thematically uh, is, is, uh, is hard to do, by the way. It's much easier if you're writing a book in a certain way to do that, but to do it cinematically uh, in a non-didactic kind of way. I think that was, that was a real challenge. There are other themes. I mean, he, his divorce, his parents' divorce. His, uh, it starts with, um, in a way, with Close Encounters, seen again in E.T., really autobiographically told in Catch Me If You Can, uh, and it resonates through many of his other, other films the impact of divorce, the impact of a broken family, uh, and yet wanting somehow to, as Tony Kushner says, uh, like Shakespeare's tragedies, what's lost must come back again. And that is a big theme in his movies. And I think people really see him generally as, you know, because of the blockbusters, people don't see him so much as a personal filmmaker. But what what we discovered in the process of making this film is that he's a very personal filmmaker, even in the blockbusters. I mean, I've always felt that about him. When somebody asked him, did you, what did you learn from this film on the red carpet the other night? He said he, he, he saw. He said, I'd never connected the dots either. <laughs> he said, I, you know, I mean, in the, even the movie, he says, I guess I am a very personal filmmaker. It's not something that he'd spent a great deal of time thinking about. But a lot of that, I think, is because he doesn't really want to question where these things come from. That He leaves that. When I asked him if he saw any themes in his work, he said, mm, sure, they're there, but that's your job. I don't want to think about that. 
because he doesn't want to be too self-conscious. He really goes a lot on instinct and a tremendous amount of preparation. But, uh, you know, if you just look at the things he's chosen to make films about, it says a great deal. So our lesson here is that the subconscious is real. The subconscious is real. <laughs> but he also said that um, part of the reason he's never needed analysis was because he makes these films and it comes out. He kind works of works it out, it out yeah. in the films. So, Deborah, to your point of, you know, um, when you were talking about kind of watching his films and then seeing some of the threads, well, you both must have had to watch every single Spielberg work that's out there. And, Deborah, you had to really dive in there and pick scenes that were going to illuminate, you know, the words from Susan's interviews. So I'm wondering, what did you learn about, not about Stephen, but about storytelling from sort of watching his whole body of work? He's a great storyteller. <laughs> um, I mean, making documentary films is always, making any film is always about storytelling. So that's always what we do when we're when we're making a film. Um, so I wouldn't say that the process was any different this time, but there was a lot more material. Um, we probably had all together, including Stephen's interviews, probably close to 150 hours of interview material. We had hundreds of photos. We had more than hundreds. thousands, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had Stephen's 27 films plus his uh, home movies. We had access to wonderful home movies. Um, there was his early amateur films. There was his TV work. So it was just masses of material, um, but all of it really fun to watch and to work with. We also had his archive, you know, interviews he'd done over the years, which were not that many, actually because uh, he, he really shies away from that. But he granted us, uh, and we say 20, it was the 27 movies we had actually had, were completed. But while we were making this film, oh, right. he was doing number 28 and 29. And I was able to go on the set and shoot on, both in Vancouver on the BFG set and in Berlin on the Bridge of Spies set. How cool. And uh, to watch him work, which was amazing. But the uh, footage that he gave us access to that he'd shot, not just his home movies, but also uh, he really chronicled the adventures, in a way, and the get-togethers of the whole movie gang that he hung out with in the 70s when they were all just trying to break into the movie business, which was Marty Scorsese and, well, Coppola had already had a little bit of success, but De Palma and Michael Phillips, who ended up producing a bunch of these, uh, Paul Schrader, uh, George Lucas, and there's really, and nobody has ever seen that footage before. And very few people have actually seen his, his childhood. We call it really his teenage films. He started, I think, when he was about 10 or 11. But, uh, you know, so, and that was a lot of films, actually. It's about nine or 10 films. So we did have an overwhelming amount of material. And I don't think, you know, it was, what was tough uh, structurally was that, the way I saw the film is was a journey to, it was almost an idiot savant in terms of his understanding about film from a very early age. And then he comes right out of the box after Sugarland with the biggest movie box office hit at that point ever uh, with Jaws. And, and, you know, then he has a couple of other really big hits, then he has a big failure. Uh, 
But the journey to get to Schindler's List, where he is finally recognized by the Academy and wins an Oscar, was, was not exactly a straight line, but kind of, of, of a journey that I felt we had to understand what he went through to, to get there, which encompasses a lot of themes, families, anti-Semitism, divorce, a lot of that is there. After Schindler's List, he's a very different kind of filmmaker. And we really had to figure out how to explore the, the, the genres then, which was, which was not a journey anymore. Now he was, you know, he could make, he's always been able to make any film he wanted, but it's a different journey. It's, it's not the same journey after Schindler's List. Schindler's List was a demarcation point. And after Schindler, then we had to figure out how to, how to continue to tell this story through kind of the genres and the, and the types of movies he was making and how those changed. He becomes less interested in, in, in fantasy, as he says, you know, make-believe, you know, re reality trumped make-believe. And he wanted to make, leave a different legacy for his children, so he starts making things like Staving Private Ryan and Amistad and, and Lincoln and Bridge of Spies. I mean, they all kind of fall in that. Then after 9-11, there's a rather dark period uh, that he goes through with War of the Worlds and Minority Report and AI. Uh, and, and so we, we had to figure out how to not make before Schindler's List and after Schindler's List two different kinds of films. And uh, I mean, didn't you think that was kind of a yeah. challenge? Well, also for a time we weren't sure if we were actually going to be making two separate films, if this was going to be two nights, if we were going to break it after Schindler's List, uh, which would give us more time for the second part to explore things. Um, and then ultimately we decided, uh, Susan decided to make it a single film, which I think was absolutely the right decision. I think part of what we experienced was it took us, it was like getting to Schindler was such climbing a mountain. And when we finally got there, we couldn't imagine just continuing on. It just seemed too monumental. Um, but I think as a single film, it works a lot better. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. If we were having a hard time, we thought, well, an audience come back for night two, because at the end of our, we actually had done sort of two different, we had done two nights. And, and Schindler is so powerful and uh, emotionally complete, not only because it brings Stephen back to Judaism, which he had really left and almost denied, uh, Kate his new marriage plays a big role in that, and he wins an Oscar, and he makes a very different kind of film. It's it, but at the end of that night, it was like, I mean, even people I showed it to said, "How are you going to get anybody to watch night two? I mean, they're going to <laughs> they're going to think this is over." Felt like it was over. Yeah, like this was a complete story, you know, and because not everybody remembers all the films he's made, so. Uh, so that that is the main reason that I decided finally it had to be in one night, uh, and we had to take a lot out, a lot out. Oh my God, that was so painful. Uh, when I, <laughs> I tell people this, I've had I've had heads of other broadcasters write me and say, "I would have given you six hours," you know. <laughs> Well, I think um, you made it was the hard. right choice for what it's worth. And Deborah, you worked some magic because I wouldn't have actually guessed. I mean, it, it did become seamless in the end. So then this begs two more questions. One is, well, I'll start with this one. What what are some of the scenes you had to 
let go of that that you are missing? Oh, I had a whole thing I wanted to do, and we tried so hard to get it in on uh, Stephen's desire from the time he was a child, or a young man wanted to make film. He really wanted to model himself after what he called the workhorse studio directors of the 40s, which is why I decided actually to start with with uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, that's what really distinguished him from all the other guys. He wanted to be a big studio director. He didn't want to be John Cassavetes. He wanted to be David Lean. Uh, but he really admired those guys uh, who just made one film after another and they were able to switch genres on a dime uh, because they had the kind of the studio system behind them and a, a crew that was consistent. He kind of made his own studio by working with the same people for ever and ever and ever. Uh, but I, I really wanted to keep that in there because I thought it was a very important part of why of who why he became the kind of filmmaker that he is, and also he references those directors Howard Hawks and and Weiler and Hitchcock and uh, uh, you know John Ford. They are very subtle and sly references to their films throughout his films, and that was really painful not to be able to pursue that. Uh, I also had felt really didn't want to leave AI out because I think it's a really interesting film. But we, we in the end we had to leave that out. What else do we have to cut out? Those were probably the biggest uh, elements that we had to leave at the side of the road. Um, but I mean, within each scene there were things like in Jaws we had a whole little section on. Um, how it was improvised, how a lot of the dialogue was improvised, how uh, the famous line, you're going to need a bigger boat, was just done on the spur of the moment. It was Stephen. It was Stephen who said, who Stephen stuck it in and said, hey, why don't you say this? He said, I'm looking at this. You've got this 50-foot, you know, shark. And he went, we're going to need a bigger We're going to need a really bigger boat. But it just was improvised right on the spot. I mean, within each film, there was... There were more. Th- we could have made. We could have made a documentary about each film. I mean, there was so much material, and choosing. But we, you know, well, that's what you you've done. This there has to be a through line, and a narrative. So everything we said is not contributing c- completely to that narrative, which is the personal journey of a director. Uh, we we finally had to take out right. And when we were selecting what to do, I mean, Susan had all these amazing interviews with all these movie stars who were very articulate and had great stories about the films that they worked on with him. We had to really make sure that each each story that we were using really pertained specifically to Stephen and illuminated something about him as a filmmaker rather than just, you know, this is a great story. Um, told by Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, there must have been so um, many cool little anecdotes. I interviewed every major <laughs> movie star just about in America. Um, sh- I, I really chose Schindler's List is the, one of the longest sequences in the film, and the next one I think in terms of a film is Munich. But Schindler's List because it encompassed so much, and because I had Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes and Ben Kingsley, all of whom are extremely articulate. Um, and that is the one place I decided not only to deal with the craft, because it, it's, it's, it's a very different film than any he'd ever made before, but also him as a director, uh, talk, by actors talking about him as a director. 
uh, because they were so articulate about it and gave very specific examples. Uh, and not everyone can do that, by the way. I mean, I don't think we had as many good examples of him as a director, very specifically how he directs people, uh, as we had from Schindler. So that became the couldn't do that with every film. The truth is, if every film had that much information, that people would have gotten very tired of it. It would have been like, oh, we got another movie now. Oh, we got another movie now. So uh, it was challenging. And we had to find a way with each film to make it have its own function so that we weren't repeating things um, about, you know, the lighting in this one and the lighting in that one, that, you know, each, each film served its purpose for our story in very particular ways. Well, so then the other kind of question stepping back that's that's related to all of this is, what is your process of working together? You have all this material. How do you go from point A to point movie? <laughs> a lot of talking, a lot of trying out things that don't work. Uh, we initially had a much uh, more chronological line to get to to get to the first movie and it was it was really not interesting it was too much information and one day I said you know what we just have to we just have to start with Jaws after the opening we just have to get to Jaws as quickly as possible and then kind of go back from Jaws and and then there was a decision to take out I mean I said you know we got to take let's take the divorce out let's don't make that part of the early story. Let's put that when we get to E.T. and Close Encounters where it becomes a theme in his work. And let's take anti-Semitism out. Let's don't plant that early on. Let's, let's hold it for, for Schindler's List. So there's a lot of trial and error, too, uh, in terms of what's the best structure. I think once we figured that out, though, things got a little easier. Well, when we first put it together, um, you know, chronology in many ways is your friend. Um, and so we laid it out chronologically mm -hmm. to kind of see what, what we had and what the story was. And in many ways, chronology is helpful because you're building to something, and he was building to something in his life. I mean, he didn't just get to where he got in Schindler, so you had to kind of deal with that arc. But once we had that, then we were able to, mostly really with the personal stuff and the family stuff, that was the st what we really started playing around with breaking up and moving around because, as Susan said in the first cut, you know, it, it was probably 30 minutes until we actually got to his movie. It was 45 minutes. <laughs> it was his movie. But it was a way to kind of see what we had and what the stories were that we were telling. And then we started moving those pieces around. Um, and Jaws did make a real, it did make a big difference to move that up to the beginning. And for a while, we were feeling like, well, his whole trajectory to get to Jaws was, you know, we can't do it right away because that's what's so incredible. He wasn't just universal and then the TV, and then the next thing you know, he has Jaws. Um, so it was, you had to keep playing around with it. You can't, you have a film about Steven Spielberg and you 45 minutes until you get to Jaws wouldn't would just not have worked. I mean, it didn't work. I mean, we didn't work for us. So we just figured out how to break up the personal story so that it, also so that we didn't give it all away up front. So that it, you know, even not just the anti-Semitism and his parents' divorce, but his relationship with his father and the 
uh, estrangement that was caused by that and the rapprochement that happens, which we saved for Saving Private Ryan because he made that film for his dad when they reconciled. Um, so it's, it's, it's layering. And you, you understand that. You have to layer it so you keep people's interest and, and, and allow the more dramatic moments to have their moment as they are in, relate to the work. Absolutely. And so effective what you did. And I, I also think it makes sense. I mean, he came into the public consciousness with Jaws. So the fact that the movie would, you know, start there after his Lawrence of Arabia musings makes a lot of sense. Well, as he said, it, it, it paved the way for the future, gave him final cut from that moment on. And he was like 25 years old. <laughs> so, again, we're no film school, and, you know, our, our readers are all filmmakers, producers, DPs. Um, and so I'm curious what you learned from all these hours spent with a master filmmaker that you will now bring into your own craft. I think what the thing that I learned from him that I'd like to think I can incorporate is people think he's a safe filmmaker, and he's not a safe filmmaker. Jaws wasn't a safe movie to make, despite the fact that it became so successful. He trusted his instincts. I got to shoot this on the ocean, did not knowing what the consequences were going to be and how that was going to affect the film, but he knew it was the right thing to do. Schindler's List was a risk. Being a white Jewish guy taking on color purple was a risk. Uh, Jurassic Park was a risk. I mean, who knew the CGA dinosaurs were going to work? So, but all along, I think Stephen has had an incredible belief in his own instinct about things. And, and I don't think that he, I truly don't think that he does things, maybe a few things for the marketplace. But by and large, I think he does, he makes the movies he wants to make, that he, want, that he wants to explore. And you know, doesn't think about the risk factor involved. Or if he does, he says, okay, this may or may not work. He had no idea Schindler's List was going to work. None. But it was a movie after 10 years of thinking about it that he had to make. So I think, you know, trust yourself is what I would have taken out of that. Trust yourself. Don't try to second guess everything. Don't try to think about what's the impact of this going to be. Just trust where your heart is taking you. Because I think that's what he's done. Easier said than done, but that is beautiful advice. Thank you so much. Thank you both, and congratulations on the film. Well, thank you. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. As mentioned at the top of the podcast, you can now watch Spielberg on HBO or HBO Go. Meanwhile, you can also hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast on iTunes or by visiting nofilmschool.com. Make sure to subscribe there on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Meanwhile, you can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. See you on Thursday. <laughs>